The Gospel according to Luke records that on the night of Jesus' birth, an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds keeping watch over their flocks in a field outside of Bethlehem. That angel delivered a message described as good news of a great joy. Good news of great joy. And that glorious news announced by a choir of angels included this benediction, this blessing. Peace on earth. That peace came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ who was the Prince of Peace prophesied in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Shifting to the Gospel according to Matthew, we learn that Jesus' birth fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Isaiah announced that this virgin-born Prince of Peace would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So putting these two witnesses together, bringing what Luke has said, what Matthew has said, as we bring them together, we find that peace came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ who dwelt among us. Peace came in the person of Jesus Christ who dwelt among us. This revelation epitomizes a recurring theme in Scripture that whenever the living God dwells among His people, He always brings peace. It's no mistake then that the followers of Jesus Christ have for centuries included the word peace in their benedictions and in their greetings. Certain formalized greetings that speak of this peace of God because it epitomizes so much of what God has brought into this world as He reaches us in Christ. To our own day, there's liturgical churches who formalize this greeting in what they call the passing of the peace. It's a part of their services The liturgy found in the Book of Common Prayer, for instance, directs the priest to say to the congregation, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And the congregation then is to respond, and with you, followed by greetings among the congregants. Greetings in the name of the Lord. Shifting to the Jewish culture, we have the word shalom. Many of us would know that Hebrew word meaning peace. And it's a greeting, it's a a message of of peace passed on to another. A passing of the peace in a sense, just in that greeting or in that benediction. Peace and greetings has even found its way into popular culture on occasion. Some of us were around in the 1960s and 70s when among the anti-establishment, anti-war young people, peace or peace man was a greeting. And a common farewell was peace out, often with the two fingers up. But peace, was just, it, was, it was a greeting. It was common. Now, obviously, none of that was rooted in theology. They weren't, it wasn't saying peace in a, in a response to what God has brought in Christ. But isn't it interesting, though the roots were political and social, anti-war, unfettered harmony and social relationships, even this anti-establishment greeting found, for a short time at least, this idea of peace on earth. It brokered in that concept of peace on earth. 
Our joy on this Lord's Day, our joy as born-again followers of Jesus Christ is that our understanding of peace is rooted not in, in, in these political or social entities, not even in cultural ideas, but our understanding of peace is rooted in the cosmic realities that are infinitely glorious. Those realities in Jesus Christ, we can say peace with a meaning that no one else can understand. When we talk about peace, it's not liturgical formality. It's not a cultural identifier. It has nothing to do with a political agenda. For us, the word peace takes on a radically new meaning that is rooted in God and His grace to us in Jesus Christ. This peace has come in the person of Jesus Christ who dwelt among us. And this all brings us to the benediction of Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. You'll make your way there in your text of Scripture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 and following. I'd intended to look at these verses last week with that larger chunk beginning at verse 6, but we simply did not have time. And I think this benediction is certainly worthy of our thoughtful consideration today, and particularly on this theme as it's presented in verse 16. But let's remember, and perhaps some haven't been with us through the series through First and Second Thessalonians, but let's remember as we consider the context here, the Apostle Paul and his evangelistic team have started this church in Thessalonica. They brought the Gospel there to northern Greece, and there was a response. People repented of their sin and turned to Christ and embraced the Gospel. But not long after Paul and his team arrived, persecution drove them out of the city. So Paul was deeply concerned for these new believers. And this book and the first epistle to the Thessalonians were written to encourage, to bless, to sanctify, in some sense, these new believers in Christ. We have made our way verse by verse through these two books and we've come to understand Paul's love for this church and his desire that they would grow in Christ. He writes to them with a warmth of a father to his children, seeking to encourage and build and strengthen them. But as, as we've worked through these two books, verse by verse, we've learned of several concerns, several challenges that they were facing. The most obvious here is that they were being persecuted themselves. Facing intense persecution, Paul comforts and encourages them to continue in the faith and to look to the final judgment when all who oppose Christ will be destroyed. There are those who are in power now. There are those who are resisting you now. But there is a day when Christ will ultimately stand in judgment. Walk in fellowship with Him. Persevere. Continue in the faith. Second problem was confusion about the return of Christ and the fear that the day of the Lord had come. If you would look in the Old Testament at description of the day of the Lord, it puts fear in you at places. And they had this fear. They had the sense that the judgment of God had begun to fall. No, says Paul, as he comes alongside them, you've heard a message that was not authentic. It did not come with biblical authority. And he sets them straight, helps them to understand these eschatological matters, these end time matters. The third issue that faced them, and we remember this from last week, those that were with us, the individuals in the church were not working. There were some in this church who were leeching off of others. 
and they were becoming busybodies with the excess time that they had. They were moving around, causing disruption within the assembly. And Paul issues this very careful rebuke of these people. And he talks to the church, what do you do when there are people in your assembly who are violating God's Word? They're refusing to change and they continue to dishonor God's truth. He talks to them very carefully about how to preserve their testimony to those who are outside of the church and how to preserve the unity and the godliness of those within the church. So Paul's gone to work here in these letters. There's been a lot to talk about. A lot to correct. Much to encourage. And he's working for their sanctification. We've now come to the end of these two books. And having just delivered this rather difficult word of correction in verses 6-15 through of chapter 3, Paul now closes his message to the Thessalonians with a benediction. A bene. A good. A word of good. A word of blessing to them. He loves this church. Let's remember this as he closes this out. He longs for their spiritual prosperity. And he closes his correspondence with a benediction that points, first of all, to the gift of peace. Verse 16. The gift of peace. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord of peace. I think this is a reference to Jesus Christ who is identified here as the Lord of peace in the sense that He is the source of peace. Our knowledge of peace, have you thought of this? Our knowledge and experience of peace is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. If you know Him, you have a knowledge of peace that this world doesn't understand. It's rooted in a person. It's not something we buy. It's not a way of thinking as such. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of peace and He gives peace. So the source of peace and the giver of peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we ask the question, well, what is peace? That's not a word that's hard to define. It's it's just the absence of hostilities, the absence of agitation. There are some children that we say need to be at peace because they're constantly agitated or there's nations that are at war there's hostilities between them we understand the concept of peace in that sense but what specifically is this peace on earth that jesus brought that's a rich question as we study the scriptures because as we take all of the bible and consider the theme of peace as it develops we find that there's much to it There's richness that is here for us. So it's the absence of hostilities. But how do we understand it biblically? What I've sought to do is to consider the biblical revelation concerning peace. We could do this in a biblical theology. That might be an, an exciting thing to do as we start in the book of Genesis and we see a place of peace. But that peace is fractured with the hostility of sin, isn't it? With sin comes hostility and Cain kills Abel. But there's a promise that one will come to crush Satan's head. There will be enmity between these two seeds, but eventually one will crush Satan's head. There will be a hostility throughout time. And we could chase this development of peace as it begins in the Garden of Eden, as it is lost in Eden, and then as it is restored at the end of Revelation. 
But taking all of that information and putting it together, I think we can bring out two ideas, two categories of understanding that help us grasp the nuances of this concept. First of all, we find distinct gradations or levels of peace. Each gradation forms a smaller circle around our lives as we work ourselves down. But let me go through them very quickly here. And I'll leave them here for you to see on the screen. My soul at peace with God. That's the largest issue. That reaches up to the heavens. My peace with God. But then secondly, we see my nation at peace with other nations. As we comb through Scripture and understand this theme of peace, nations warring with nations is a very important theme. Thirdly, is peace in my relationships with other individuals. And number four, the experience of inner peace. Now let me talk for a moment here, a few moments, about the interrelatedness of these four ideas of peace, these gradations or levels of peace. What is the most important? Obviously, number one, the primary most important consideration whenever peace is considered in the Scriptures is our peace with God. Being not in a position of hostility with God, but in a position of peace with God. And so someone would ask, well, of this benediction, and commentators argue over this, it says, the Lord of peace, may He give you peace. Well, what kind of peace? Peace with other people? Peace with Him? As we understand all of biblical revelation on this theme the heavy emphasis always falls on peace with God. Peace among people flows from that naturally. But this is the largest concern. If I am not at peace in my relationship with God, number one, I cannot fully enjoy numbers three and four, can I? Number three, peace in my relationships with other individuals. Any peace in my relationship with other people is ultimately empty and incomplete if I am not at peace with God. And that peace that I have with other people will someday be lost. And never will that peace satisfy. If you are separated from Christ today, there's a hostility between you and Him, not necessarily that you hate God with all of your might, but you've not been reconciled to Him. If there is not peace between you and God, every relationship of peace in your life is destined for big trouble. It may take a long time to get there. It may happen very quickly. You cannot have a right relationship with others unless you're at peace with God. Every other relationship is just a farce. And it may be idolatrous and it will burn you. It must start with our relationship with God, to be at peace with Him. If you say, I'm having so many struggles with other people in my life, there's so much war that's there. There's so much animosity. I ask you, not are you at peace with them, I ask you, are you at peace with God? Number four, any inner peace I seem to experience is really then a delusion if it's not rooted in peace with God. I may seek peace in my own inner being. But if I'm not at peace with God, any peace that I gain will be temporary and unfulfilling. We must start with Him. I would say we can even have number one without number four as we continue to think through these matters. My soul at peace with God, 
but I'm not experiencing a sense of inner peace. I think this is what Philippians chapter 4 is saying. When in verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. Who's he writing to? Believers in Christ. They are at peace with God. But he says to them, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, rather, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he's talking to people whose hearts are not guarded at the moment in Christ Jesus, in some sense. They are facing anxiety. There's an agitation of spirit within The answer is to take our request to the Lord, to throw our concerns upon Him, and we have the promise of God that He will respond by giving us peace. Now that's not peace with God. These are believers. But that's an inner sense of peace that is based on my knowledge of God. So I ask you, are you anxious today? What causes anxiety to you? Where's the agitation point in your soul? What troubles your heart? As you're considering that, you know what it is. You know who it is. As you consider that, think about this. Jesus came in part to replace that worry and anxiety with His peace. He came to give us peace in the midst of of the trials of this life and indeed in the hostilities of some relationships to grant us an inner peace where we do not find anxiety and worry and agitation, but we respond to the difficulties of life with the peace of God that He supplies. How do we get that? I mean, that sounds supernatural. It is, indeed. It comes from God. It's a gift of peace from Him to those that are at peace with Him already. How do I gain that? How do I? Well, what does Paul say here? Go to the Lord in prayer, giving thanks and making your requests known to Him. I have something to confess, and maybe there's a few of you out there that would identify with this. I find that at the place where I am most anxious, where I am most agitated in my soul because of some trial, that seems to be the times that I pray the least. I get anxious about fixing things. I want to act to make that agitation go away. That trial go away. And I'm consumed inside and agitated inside and I don't take the time to pray. I don't bring it before the Lord, which is an evidence of my own idolatry and self-dependence, which is a matter that I face all the time. But we need to tie in here and see Jesus, Paul, as Paul says here in this text, the promise that's revealed. As I take matters to the Lord in prayer, there's a promise that the peace of God will replace that anxiety. Now, it's not magical. But it's an orientation of how I go about the challenges that I face. Don't be anxious. Rather pray, and the peace of God that passes understanding will be given as a gift. I need to trust that, and I need to pray. As we continue to consider the relationship between these these aspects, 
I may lack number three and yet possess one and four. Right? I may not have peace in a relationship with some individual, some family, some greater entity. There may be war and hostility there because there's nothing that I can do about it, but I am at peace with God and I am at peace in my soul. doesn't mean there's no concern or there's no trial there, but even then, I can experience this inner peace as I take my anxieties to the Lord in prayer, leave them at His throne, and receive His gift of of peace. I can experience this inner peace with a God with whom I'm at peace, even though I'm in the midst of great challenges relationally with others. That is possible. As we see in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. We're going to come back to this point under another heading. But think of this. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It, it, I can't always do it. But I can always be at peace with God and have a sense, an inner experience of the peace of God in my life, no matter what's going on in my relationship with others. Let me go back here. Sometimes it's not possible to live at peace with others. But, moving on, I can possess one, three, and four while lacking two. Just as I can have one and four without three, so I can have one, three, and four without two. That's pretty obvious to us. My nation can be at war and I'm at peace in these other areas. Again, I'm not, th- this is not drawn out of psychology as we lay these ideas out. This is drawn from Scripture, from, from the theology of peace that we find there. When it comes to war in one's nation, this is a major concern of Scripture. Most of us will never be able to control whether our nation goes to war. Most of us will never hold an office that permits us to declare war on another nation. Let me say, I'm pretty sure none of us, none of us ever will be able to declare war on another nation. Now, I, I might be able to start a war with uh, Tanzania, let's say. But probably not. I'd probably just end up in jail before I got the war started. I'd be in big, big trouble in any event. I probably can't even start a war if I tried between two nations. Generally speaking, national peace is not something I can control. But as we study the Bible, peace among nations is a good thing and it is a gift from God. And so Psalm 122 and verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is right to desire that nations would be at peace. There's the Davidic theme of peace amidst surrounding enemies. David speaks so often about how God has gifted his hands for war. Point of war in Israel is not to crush your enemies. Sometimes we read texts that seem to indicate that, but it's because we're not seeing the larger picture. The hope of it all is peace. Sometimes it takes war to have peace. But ultimately, as we see David and then Solomon at peace among their enemies, where is it pointing? Do we just cheer and clap our hands that isn't it wonderful? Israel had a few years of peace there. No, what we are to see is this greater theme of the greater Son of David, Jesus Christ, who with grand political ambitions will compel the nations to beat their swords into plowshares. 
to live at peace with one another. That Jesus will bring to this earth. And so number two is important to us. Peace among nations. The largest sense, my relationship with God. Then, national peace. A good thing, not in my control. Thirdly, peace in my relationship with other individuals. And then finally, closer to home, peace within my inner being. These are levels or gradations of peace that we find as we chase this theme through Scripture. But let us turn then to, another, to the varying emphases of peace as a second point of consideration. These are the nuances of the meaning depending on the context. The first use of peace in Scripture is peace as an attribute of God. The God of peace, we read in this benediction. In fact, He's the source of peace in the sense that peace flows from His being. God is often at war in the Bible. There's no question about that. But God does not start wars in the sense that He's not a mean-spirited, pugnacious God that likes to pick fights with people and prove how powerful He is so He sends His people to war. Not at all. To the core of His being, God is a God of peace who will not rest until peace reigns on earth. When Christ rules, when the eternal state begins, it won't be perpetual war against the enemies of God. All those fights will be in the past and the God of peace will reign eternally over a never-ending peace. No nations at war ever again. If we love God, that's where we want to be. That's where God wants to be. Peace is His attribute. It comes from who He is. Secondly, there's peace as a gift from God to His people. We read of this in John 14.27 earlier this morning. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This gift of peace that comes from God. Or consider Romans 5. How How significant this passage is. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there it is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. This grace, this gift of peace in which we stand. We have a standing with God, before God, in peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Now you see here, if you look at it carefully, peace with God requires justification. This means that our sins put us in a hostile relationship with God. Do we understand that? Do you sense and understand that point? My sin places me in a position of hostility with God. Many times people don't feel themselves to be in absolute rebellion against God, and this becomes a difficult concept that I am an enemy of God. But if we come to understand this point biblically, it's not difficult to see. God is a loving lawgiver. He gives us His Word and His counsel that we might, as His beloved children, live according to His Word. But we're not His beloved children by birth. We're enemies by nature who break His law. We cheat and we steal and we lust We are filled with greed. We use our tongues to harm one another. And we don't love God with all of our heart. 
what we were created to do. We break the law of God and thus are in a position of hostility toward Him. This renders us an enemy of God in His righteousness and an object of His just judgment. The good news is that I who am naturally born a sinner can be justified. That means I can be declared righteous by God. So you may be here this morning thinking, I, yes, that's what I'm pursuing is a right relationship with God. I want peace with God and I'm going to do that by being a good person. I'm going to do that by going to church. I'm going to do that by doing the right things and being a decent individual in this world. That's not how justification comes. It doesn't come through you. It comes through Jesus Christ. A right standing before God is a gift of Christ's mercy and grace. So, I, a lawbreaker, come to peace with God when I receive as His gift the the reality that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of my sin and rose from the dead in victory over death. Bearing the penalty of my sin, He then gives to me His righteous standing. That is a gift. And if you think that's something you can earn, you don't understand. It is a gift of God's grace and mercy. It's not a gift that's a partial gift that we need to continue to work out our salvation to gain God's favor. It's a complete gift that is unmerited. By His grace alone, He justifies, declares righteous those who trust what Jesus has done. That gift of mercy comes from God. If you're not at peace with God, There's something you've never experienced. You've never gone to bed at night and known what it means to be forgiven. You might have gone to bed at night and know what it means to be somebody who works to gain their salvation. You know what it means to be a good neighbor, to be a good parent or child or friend at least as others would judge you, but you don't know what it means to go to bed at night and say, I am at peace with God. What you must do is be reconciled to God. Your sin stands in the way of that peace. You need to turn from that sin to repent of it and to embrace the gift of Jesus Christ bearing your sin entirely paying the full penalty of it and giving to you by His mercy salvation and forgiveness of sin. The result is I'm at peace with God. I pillow my head at night and I say, I've been forgiven. Not because I've earned it, I haven't bought it. I wasn't born into the right family. I haven't done good deeds that earned that favor before God, but He gave it to me as His gift. The gift of grace. The gift of salvation. So, as we look at these emphases, God is the source of peace. God is the giver of peace to His people. 
Thirdly, peace is then becomes an ethical responsibility of God's people. If I have been won by this message of grace and peace that God gives to me by faith in the gospel, now it becomes my responsibility to live in peace with others, to pursue peace as an ethical responsibility. Sin destroys peace. Sin fractures relationships. But Psalm 34 and verse 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's not talking, I don't think here, about gaining peace with God, but it's an ethical responsibility, a moral responsibility to seek peace with others. As Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 1 Peter 3 and verse 11, seek peace and Pursue it, quoting Psalm 34 and verse 14. Clearly there is this call to seek the peace with others in response to the peace of God that has been given to us as a gift. And if I understand the peace of God, the peace that He gives to me in declaring me righteous and forgiving my sin, there's no other thing to do but to pursue peace with others. I now don't want to kill. I don't, now don't want to go to war. I now don't want that agitation that exists between me and others. I now want to pursue peace like God pursued peace with me. And I'm changed. I change from a murderer, at least in my mind, to a lover a person of grace. We won't spend any time on this fourth, but peace is a disposition because we've covered it under that first notion. But this is another emphasis of peace in the Scriptures, that, that peace uh, that rules in our hearts, that displaces anxiety. And then number five, the peace is a condition of nature freed from the curse. Where did that come from? Everything's relational till now. Well, no, this is still relational. Peace will come to this earth. Jesus said what to the storm? He didn't just say as the waves were tossed, the wind was whipping the boat around, the disciples were about to die. He didn't just say stop. He said peace, be still. He called for that agitation of that storm to end. And there will be a day that comes in His millennial reign when Jesus reverses the curse the desert will blossom as a ro rose. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and straight line winds and all of these things that destroy will be done. They will cease. The agitation of a cursed earth will be fixed. The peace that Jesus brought to earth in His first coming will rule the earth in His second coming. I think when the angel said peace on earth, it included this. That one day, the earth itself would be at peace because of Christ. When you heap that all together, don't you hear Paul speaking a little differently? 
how quickly we can read through verse 16. May the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. This is rich. At all times, no matter the situation, in every way, no matter the need, if God would just give us this gift, where would we be? We understand past just this simple benediction. We would be at peace with God, our sins forgiven and reconciled. As far as lies with us, we would be pursuing peace with everyone around us. We would experience the joy of peace in our hearts. We would find ourselves actively pursuing peace in all of our relationships and no matter what trial we experienced, nothing would take away our peace with God. The truth is, in Christ, God has given us all to those who come to trust Christ as Savior. This peace is given as a gift. Jesus has won this peace by His death on the cross. A gift of peace. There's four more sermons to come from this place, but I'm going to summarize them in just a matter of moments. The gift of peace we find in verse 16. In the second half of verse 16, we find the presence of God. The gift of peace, the presence of God. The Lord be with you. Do you see it there? This biblical theme of God dwelling among His people. It starts perhaps maybe most notably in the book of Exodus where the tent of meeting is set up. In Exodus 25 and verse 8, let them, says the Lord, make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Now God goes out of His way to explain that He doesn't need to live in a tent. But He says, I want you to erect a tent so that I can dwell with you. That I can be with you. And whenever God comes to dwell with His people, He brings peace with Him. As the New Testament unfolds, Jesus tented among us. John chapter 1 and verse 14. Then Jesus descended or ascended to heaven and sent His Spirit to indwell and minister to His people so that now we can say with Hebrews 13 and verse 5, God will never leave us or forsake us. He dwells among us by His Spirit and always will. The God of peace lives among His people, never forsaking them. May the Lord be with you. Paul says, the gift of peace, the presence of God, the preservation of truth, verse 17. We move here into what seems like a very mundane note, but it's an important one. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. Now, what's that all about? To this point in the letter, almost certainly, Paul has been using an amanuensis, that is, a, a secretary or a, a scribe. He would dictate the letter to this individual who would write it, then at the end, which was very common in that day, in the writing of letters, you can see these letters preserved today where you see the script change. And the author would take up the pen and whatever's being used there and would then, would then write out that end piece to show that he was in fact part of the composition of this letter. So Paul says, I'm writing now with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in all my letters. We'd love to know how many of them there were. Only a few have been preserved. But he's saying, I, I want you to know this comes from me. Now, this really isn't all that far off from where many of us have lived in our life. It wasn't long ago that a CEO would have a secretary and all the letters would be dictated verbally to that individual who would type them out. And when that typing took place and the letter was done, a pile of letters would be presented to that officer who would do what? 
take a pen and sign it saying i in fact am responsible for this letter although no one thought back then that the individual had actually typed it maybe some did but not not somebody who had had this uh, arrangement in their office it's essentially what's happening here paul is in a sense signing the letter he says this is how i write now why does he need to mention this couldn't they tell that? In fact, many times there is no such reference in these letters from ancient times. It just, you just see the script change. But remember chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. They weren't at peace inwardly. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Apparently, at least possibly, Someone had written a message saying that it came from Paul and the day of the Lord had come. Now, this is how I write. This is the sign in my letters that's come from me. Don't believe some false letter. Now, what this all means, I think, in context here is that the peace of God hinges on the truth of God's Word. And that truth must be preserved or peace is lost. Those that begin to play with what the text of Scripture says are on the fast track to losing peace because soon they'll lose the very plan of salvation. It's inevitable. Paul says, verse 15 of chapter 2, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Remembering traditions is the teaching of the truth. That must be preserved. And Paul goes out of his way here to say, here's how we're going to preserve it. Anybody writing in my name that doesn't end it up this way, it's not an authentic letter. Remember that. You must embrace the truth, the apostolic truth. The gift of peace, the presence of God, the preservation of truth, and finally the grace of Christ. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We could go off onto this through Scripture as we have with peace. Time will not allow that this morning, afternoon. But grace and peace often go together, don't they? Especially in Paul's benedictions because this peace from God is a gift of His grace. Never is peace earned. Never earned by who we are, by what we do. Peace is always given by God as a gift according to His sovereign purposes. So, in a manner of speaking, Paul kind of says here at the end, peace man, or peace out. The difference is, the peace of God never goes out because He never leaves us or forsakes us. He never says goodbye. He dwells among us, bringing His peace ever in our presence. Are you a child of God? Have you come to a place of saving faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus? If not, you've nothing to lose but your position of hostility with God, the agitation in your unsatisfied soul, and you have to gain the peace of God which passes all understanding. I encourage you, to turn from sin and to embrace the simple message of the gift of salvation. Drink deeply of Jesus. Trust Him for His saving grace. And you will be reconciled to God and filled with a peace that cannot be described or understood in this world. A peace you've never understood. But by God's grace, you'll sense and know. 
For those of us who know Christ as Savior, what challenges are you facing? Where does the agitation come from? Remember, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to bring peace on earth. He came to reconcile you to God. Throw your anxiety on Him. Choose peace and pursue it with all of your might. Fathers, I speak to you in particular. Is your home a place of peace? Do you lead in such a way that seeks peace with your children, with your wives, with the families of this church as we gather together and seek peace? Life has become far more complicated in the Miller home, but I remember particularly when the kids were younger and tucking them into bed. And I would encourage it to just occasionally place your hand, dads, on your kid's head and pass the peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Pass it on. So much of what we pass on, so much of what I pass on, I don't think would qualify as peace. May God lead us to always pursue peace. As difficult as that sometimes is, as many confusions as come, may we be pursuing peace. As families, as a church, pursuing peace in our relationships with one another out of response to the peace that God has brought into our lives. He sought us out and gave us peace by His mercy. Let us seek one another out and seek to live at peace in response to this grace. Now if you'll just bow your heads and meditate. As a pastor, allow me to say, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Father, may Your peace rest upon us. Bring to saving grace anyone that is at war with You. For those of us who have come to peace with God, may we experience it and know it and walk in peace with one another. This is why Jesus came. May we live out the life of peace in response. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.